Williamson and his wife Peggy joining us. Uh, we're very thankful to have them here. Uh, Cecil Williamson, if you want a bit of history lesson, in 1974, when this church was voting on whether or not to stay in the PCUS or leave a, to join a brand new denomination at the time called the National Presbyterian Church, the day we voted as a church, we had a guest preacher who was Cecil Williamson, and he delivered a wonderful sermon. I'm sure I was not born yet, but I'm sure it was great. And we voted as a church afterwards to join the National Presbyterian Church, which then had to change its name to the Presbyterian Church in America. So we're thankful to have him here with his wife, Peggy, and uh, relive some history being in this church again with us. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're in Rev uh, Revelation. We're in Ephesians 3. And but we've been out of Ephesians for a bit. We took a break during the, the Easter season to go through the Gospels. So to just give you an idea of where we've come from, and, and also just say, even if we had not taken a break, I would still do what I'm about to do because the very first verse of Ephesians 3 should hit us like a two-by-four because everything that's come before it doesn't prepare you for what Paul is about to tell you. Because when we begin the letter of Ephesians, we could easily imagine that Paul wrote this on a very comfortable pastor's retreat for new church planters. We could imagine that maybe he's on a sabbatical. I mean, the guy has been traveling all over the known world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been chased out of towns. He's escaped out of towns. He's gone hungry. He's had to make a living doing tent making. I mean, he, he's tired. Maybe he is on a well-deserved rest, and while he's resting, he's reflecting on all these wonderful things. Because the first part of this, we, like I, we went through, was a, it's a prayer. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, he begins with this beautiful blessing over the Ephesians about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he goes on to say that all things in heaven and on earth are united in Jesus Christ. And that we get to, to participate in this because before the world was even formed, God called you to himself through his son. I mean, these are wondrously high truths, glorious truths that he's reflecting on. And then he prays that we would grow in the knowledge of the revelation of Jesus and then in chapter 2, he hits us with, we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God, in his marvelous mercy and grace, saved us. And this is good news for Jews and Gentiles. No more do you have to be at odds with one another. All the enmity that existed between your races died at the cross so that you can be one new person. And in the latter half of verse 2, it's not just that you're a new person but that you've been reconciled and are now actually a temple to God, being constructed together, needing one another, and being just joined to one another through the sacrifice of God and the Spirit now rests upon all of you. I mean, this is, this is heart-stirring. It's, it's so unbelievable to be reminded of these truths, and it would be easy for us to think, like I said, he wrote this, at his leisure, when he had time, when he wasn't under stress or anxiety or burdened. So let's find out 
the situation surrounding the timing of when Paul wrote this letter. We are going to read all of Ephesians 3 because it is a very complete thought, but we will be focusing especially on just the first verse this morning. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for this letter that you have given to the church that we receive with faith. Give us eyes to hear today this powerful word from your servant, Paul, that our hearts may be stirred to treasure and examine and glory in the marvelous riches you have given us through grace. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we ask all these things. Amen. Most of you might be familiar with the English uh, Puritan theologian and author John Bunyan. He's one of the most influential authors of all time. He was born in the year 1628 near Bedford, England, and he was a wild young man. During the English Civil War, he joined uh, Oliver Cromwell's army, and uh, after serving, he returned home, and he did the right thing. He married a godly woman, and through her influence, he actually became converted. He was baptized, and he quickly uh, started serving in his local church, and he very quickly made a name for himself as a gifted young preacher. So gifted that by 1651, the very learned John Owen 
Cambridge, big time scholar and theologian, would say of Bunyan that he would exchange all of his learning just to be able to have Bunyan's power in the pulpit of touching men's hearts. His wife died and he remarried another godly woman in 1659, and the very next year, 1660, he was arrested for preaching without the king's permission, which was a big no-no during this time, and he would spend 12 and a half years in prison. That's the first time he went to prison for preaching the gospel, and it was while in prison that he starts writing, and he's publishing all of these books, uh, a lot of his theological works that we've received, and uh, he makes a name for himself now as an author. He's released in 1672. He gets arrested again three years later for once again preaching without the king's permission. And during the second imprisonment, he blesses the world with his most famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Now think about this. This is the years 16, late 1600s. Within the first decade of that book being written, it sold 100,000 copies. I mean, think of how much went into producing a book back then. He sold 100,000 copies. Today, it has never gone out of print, and today it's in over 200 languages. The British publication, The Guardian, has listed it as the greatest work of literature in the English language. I mean, he's beating th names we think of like Shakespeare to get to the top of this list. It has been adapted to films, it's been made into an opera, it's been animated, it's been brought down to children's levels so that they can, at an early age, start to appreciate the lessons and stories in it. I share all of this not to draw our attention to John Bunyan's literary works or his preaching or anything like that. I draw our attention to it because it is highly likely that if John Bunyan had not been imprisoned, we would not have the gift of his works. We would not have the pilgrim's progress, which has touched so many lives in explaining the gospel to people. What magistrates and kings meant for silence is imprisonment God used as a bullhorn for the gospel. The same is true for our apostle Paul. If he had not been in prison, we would not have the gift of these letters that he wrote to the church. And, and Paul's situation, the reason I gave us the, the, the kind of cliff notes of chapters 1 and 2 is, like I said, it would be easy for us, if we didn't know about Paul and his sufferings, to just pick up Ephesians and think, man, these are really great things, you know, glad somebody sat down and thought through all of this. But Paul's sitting down thinking about it while he is shackled to two Roman guards. He is writing this letter while he is under arrest, awaiting an, uncert an uncertain future. So our question is, uh, the question that comes up from this is, what held him captive? Was it his trials that held him captive? We don't even learn that he's imprisoned until right now in the middle of this, left, this letter. His sufferings could have been an embarrassment to him, right? If you're really pious, if you're really blessed by God, you're not going to land yourself in prison, Paul. And some of his enemies likely were using that as a way to... to work against what he was preaching. But for Paul, his suffering was proof of not only his calling, but his apostleship. And indeed, suffering was proof of our discipleship and calling as Christians. He wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
James put it a little bit more positively when he said, count it all joy when you face trials. Our sufferings are not only lessons that we are taught and learn about God's grace and mercy to us, they're, they're lessons for one another. They edify us. And now we may all bring up the good point of, in this country at least, we don't get arrested for preaching the gospel. But we're aware that in large other parts of the world, you do get arrested for preaching the gospel. We don't have to worry, I think I've brought this up before, we do not have to worry that in the middle of this service, the police are going to come in and escort me out and question all of you for hours upon hours, or once we leave, they're going to follow us back to our homes like they do in China. So if we focus, though, on just on that, we're going to miss part of Paul's point entirely. It's true that Paul is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, but he doesn't want us to focus on what he is necessarily going through, but on Christ. He shows us how to view our suffering and so that we can keep our eyes on Christ. He shows us how to endure suffering so that we will hold fast to Christ. Why? Because while we all might not be imprisoned, we are all going to suffer. And he is showing us with his life, this is how you handle those trials and times of sufferings. How can we determine that our present trials, whether illness or despair or fear, are not trials that God has given us so that we might endure and then bless others the way Paul has blessed the church? And this is what he does. He turns this trial, this imprisonment, for an opportunity for ministry. I mean, it's almost as if Satan thought chains could stop Paul from preaching. And so while he's there, he says, you can't stop my pen. You can't stop me from telling others about Christ. Even my jailers I'll preach to. And he sends these letters out to all the churches that he goes and has ministered to. In doing so, what was meant maybe for evil or for hardships is turned for good. The trials that you are going through today are not unknown to God. Look to how God is shaping you in them. Find where he wants you to minister to others because you've gone through something. Now, I don't believe that we must experience everything or every temptation or trial to be able to be useful to others. I mean, by God's grace, we can counsel and encourage one another without necessarily sharing all the same experiences. But I do know and have experienced that special grace of talking to someone who has journeyed the same path of suffering or hardships that I've gone through. And I've been blessed to feel known in a way that somebody who didn't go through it wouldn't be able to relate to me. Don't waste those sufferings. Don't waste those trials because God is using them to, first of all, mold your heart more in sanctification, mold your heart more in mercy and love, and then he will use that to bless others who need you to help them and, and comfort them and be able to say to them, I know what you are going through. Here is where God met me in the same place that you are currently at. And this is why we do benefit from stories of martyrs and those who have been persecuted and missionaries who have gone through such hardship or those who have uh, suffered physically over the years. They show us how to face trials and how trials cannot hold captive the soul set free by Christ. I listened to a podcast this week with Johnny Erickson Tata. If you thought her name was Joni, you're wrong. It's Johnny. This, this came up in the podcast. It's, that's at least the way it was pronounced, and Johnny didn't correct the woman. But Johnny marks this year 55 years that she has lived as a quadriplegic. 
She shared about the battles that she continues to face in this life. Uh, she can't sleep a lot at night because she's in such severe pain. And so the interviewer asked, well, what do you do when you are in such pain that you, you, know, you can't fall asleep? She said, I sing hymns of suffering and pain to God, and I trust him. And so then the, the interviewer said, well, what has you learned through this suffering? And this is what she said, believe me, your suffering, your affliction, your, your dryness of spirit, your season of grief is your asset. It is indeed your best friend because God resists the proud. He resists people who have it all together. His heart is toward the needy, the weak, the infirm, the confused, the downcast, the brokenhearted. He is near to those who are crushed in spirit. Your season of dryness and affliction is your best friend. It's going to be that sheepdog that nips at your heels and drives you to the Savior where you otherwise might not be inclined to go. Without her suffering, would Johnny have had the teaching mercy ministry that she has, the influence that she has had for the church and those in need? Would she be able to teach us that when we go through something, it's not that we well, you know, look at what she's gone through and she, she's amazing. Johnny points to the Savior. She says, the way I've gotten through this, this quadriplegic uh, lifetime is because of my Savior. So let's not waste our suffering and trials because we don't know what God will make out of them. And, and Paul certainly demonstrates that here, but I, I don't think that's what held him captive. That's our question. What is, what is holding Paul captive? I don't think it's his sufferings. Maybe he was held captive by the world. I mean, why was Paul even arrested in the first place? If you don't know, you can read from Acts 21 or 22 through the end. Paul's arrested when he goes to Jerusalem. He had gone there with uh, an offering to the Jews there from the Gentile churches that he had established. But when he gets there, rumors had preceded him. There were Jewish Christians who were saying that Paul doesn't respect the law anymore, that he doesn't want, you know, does away with Jewish customs. Now, all, all these were lies. Paul loved Gentiles, and he loved his Jewish heritage. That's where he got the scriptures from. That's where the promise of the Messiah comes from. But he taught that Jews and Gentiles were no longer required to obey everything in the Jewish law. And this was something that the church had already ruled on by that point. Still, in order to be at peace among his brethren, the church in Jerusalem asked Paul, would you please do a temple purification period? And Paul gladly submits to them and says, sure. Paul took a disciple with him from Ephesus named Trophimus to the temple. Now at that time, the, the temple had many divisions. One was an inner court, one was an outer court. The inner court was for Jewish men only. And as you approached it, there was a sign out there saying, if you are a Gentile, you cannot enter under penalty of death. While Paul is at the temple, some Jews probably from Asia Minor noticed that, in the, that Paul had this disciple Trophimus with him from Ephesus knowing that he was a Gentile, and so they quickly incite a mob to say that Paul has brought this Gentile from Ephesus into the sacred place that was reserved only for Jewish men. 
A mob drags Paul out of the temple, and we're definitely intent on just killing him. But the uproar caught the attention of the Roman commander who put down the mob. And the Roman commander meant to beat Paul and release him, but he discovered that he was a Roman citizen. So instead of beating him, he turned him over to the Sanhedrin for a trial. Now the trial didn't go the way the Sanhedrin thought because Paul quickly realizing that there's Sadducees and Pharisees, he pits them against one another. And they get in such a fight during his trial that the Roman commander has to come in again. And this time he takes Paul away because he's afraid he's gonna get killed one, or almost get killed once again. So he's taken again into custody by the Romans. During this time, Paul's nephew discovers a plot to kill him. So the Roman commander has to take Paul out of Jerusalem entirely. And Paul becomes a prisoner of the Roman governor in the area, a man named Felix, and then Festus. And he gets passed around. And eventually during his trial with Festus, he appeals to Rome. I want to see the emperor. No more playing games with me. I've been in prison three years. I have plots against me. I appeal to Rome. I appeal to Nero. I'm a Roman citizen. That's my right. That's the way he was arrested. It started because he loved his Gentile brother and sisters in Christ. It was for their sake. That's what he says at the end part of verse 1. On behalf of you Gentiles, it's because of you that I'm here. Because I love you this much. But the question is, whose prisoner was he? Right, the Sanhedrin claimed him at one time. Then Felix and Festus, the Roman governors, and eventually Nero, the emperor. But Paul never allows them to claim him as a prisoner. Paul never allows the world to hold him captive. Look at the way he describes his imprisonment. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In the Greek there, it's actually the prisoner. It's the definite article. I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Sanhedrin. I, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. I, Paul, Nero's prisoner. He could have made everything change if he simply confessed and made amends and tried to work it all out during this trial. The worldly powers were trying to get him to deny who he belonged to, Jesus Christ. So Paul shows the saints how to stand firm when the world tries to hold you captive. He doesn't even give them the recognition of being their prisoner. They are but pawns in God's plan. He is not a pawn in their worldly plan. But the question still remains, what is holding him captive? Because he's not letting it be these worldly kings and rulers. He's not letting it just be his sufferings and his, his heart for the Gentiles. What is holding him captive? So maybe at this point you've been thinking and confused, rightly so, that I'm referring to captivity in a negative sense. That is what most of us think when we think of the word captive, right? Webster's gives us that as the primary definition, one who has been captured. But there's a secondary definition, one who has been captivated. That is, having one's interest or intention held or captured by someone or something. So let me ask the question again, and this time I'm going to change part of it. So let's listen closely. Not what holds Paul captive, but who holds Paul captive. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not his trials, not the world, 
but Christ has held him captive. Since Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul has been captivated by Jesus of Nazareth. He has gone around preaching him from the moment after Ananias prays over him and the scales fall off his eyes. No one could contain his heart for the gospel because Jesus had filled it. He suffered beatings, trials, shipwrecks, threats of death, a terrible ruined reputation. He's bitten by a snake. He's been dishonored. He counts all of it worth it if he gets to preach Christ. I can't say it or put it any better than a brilliant New Testament scholar by the name of F.F. Bruce. He said this of this passage and the way Paul is viewing himself, not as captive as a prisoner, but captivated by Christ Jesus. Bruce said this, he styles himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. See what the grace of God can accomplish. Scan not without wonder the bearing of this caged eagle penned within Nero's prison bars. Here is a veteran soldier of the cross, seamed with many a battle scar, shut out from the high places of the field where he had so gallantly trodden down with strength. Cramped within painfully narrow precincts, his untamed spirit shackled by manacles of inaction and suspense. The churches whose names were graven on his heart left, meanwhile, untended, and he himself to all seemingly laid aside as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Does he faint? Does he give up? Nay, he glories in tribulations. Nero's prisoner? Nothing of the sort. He is the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and that makes a world of difference. Renders him far freer than his jailers, in fact. What is best for the Lord's cause, the Lord knows best. It was for an Ephesian convert's sake that Paul had been mobbed at Jerusalem. And in their cause, he is right willing to spend and be spent, to be changed or at large as the supreme will decrees. Paul has a final trial. Right before he appeals to Nero, he is met with Festus and King Agrippa. It's in Acts 26. And while there, he gives them more than enough evidence that he has broken no laws, Jewish or Roman, for which he is being persecuted. And if he had just stopped there, he would have been fine. But Paul sees an opportunity to preach the gospel to two of the most powerful men in that realm. And so Luke records what Paul says, or this incident of his trial. This is what he writes in Acts 26, beginning in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been, uh, been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul was not out of his mind. He was wholly captivated by his Savior, so that even in the moment when he could have saved himself, his heart was to save his very imprisoners. 
the men who would think they were their captors. A heart captivated, a life captivated by Jesus Christ will endure sufferings. A heart and life captivated by Jesus Christ will not bow when the world is pressing down upon them. But a heart captivated by Jesus Christ will gladly take on chains for the gospel so that they will be freer than all those who run around thinking they are free in sin. And they won't waste opportunities to share their sufferings, to share the trial, so that they can boldly proclaim the grace they have received from Christ Jesus. Saints, who holds you captive this day? Don't let it be your trials. Don't let it be the world. Let it always be Christ who will turn trials into triumphs, who will help you stand firm when the world says cave, and who will be your every comfort, grace, and who will safely lead you home to glory. Jonathan Edwards said that for some, this world will be the closest thing to heaven anyone will ever get. And for believers, it might just be the closest thing to hell they'll ever experience. Your hardships in this life are not your future glory. Don't give up. Don't cave in. Don't let them take you captive, but be taken captive by Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, it blows me away that you have taken my heart captive, that you would extend that mercy and grace to a sinner like me. I'm sure that there are people here saying the same thing. Lord, may we give you continual praises that you have blessed us with your gospel. May we respond to it with humility. May we respond to it with zealousness to follow you, to be obedient. And Lord, that we would gladly endure sufferings and trials and persecutions just to share with others the marvelous riches and the glorious truths of your grace in the gospel. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.